The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, You have uh, given us Your Son to atone for our sins and to open uh, the way, not just uh, to a better life, but to, to You. And to assure us of that, You've given us Your Spirit. And You have given us Your church, uh, endowed with both word and sacrament, that we may love You, experience You, taste and see, literally, that the Lord is good. So now, Lord, as we come and, and learn uh, more about Your sacrament, consider what is available to us in the sacrament. We ask that You would um, give us that same Spirit, the Spirit that makes the sacrament special, uh, the Spirit that makes it the body and blood to us. We ask that You would send that Spirit to enliven our minds and quicken our hearts uh, to love You and to serve You and to worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I heard someone say this week, and I, I loved what they said, that uh, theology must lead to doxology. Theology must lead to doxology. In other words, the study of God must lead to the praise of God, uh, not simply to... Just knowing more. What did St. Paul say? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, as we consider this uh, cornerstone of our worship, uh, part two of how, what, what's so holy about the Eucharist, let us remember uh, that it take us to praise, uh, not, uh, not just dead uh, doctrine. Uh, theology must lead to doxology. So last week we talked about, so part one, we talked about the sacrament uh, and the sacraments. We talked about the nature of a sacrament. What is a sacrament? What's the definition? I know you know. Yes, indeed. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And of course we have the outward sign of baptism is the water and the oil. And the inward sign is the uh, regeneration of our souls, the, um, the washing away of our sins. The, um, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, and in fact also the water uh, that is placed into the wine, um, being the outward sign uh, and the inward sign being the uh, atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us, His body broken for us, uh, his blood poured out for us. Um, and it occurred to me this week that in both of these sacraments that, that the Lord, uh, that are instituted by Jesus, the Lord is giving Himself to us. I mean, you think about the baptism uh, of Jesus in the Jordan, and Jesus is uh, aligning Himself as the Son of God with those He came to save. Why would Jesus take a baptism of repentance? He doesn't need to repent. He is aligning Himself, not just setting an example for us, but aligning Himself with, with us. There's a, um, a sense of being an imputed property about His, his um, baptism as well as His cross. The cross. His sacrifice is imputed to us. You know what that means? Where it's, uh, we get the credit for it. Um, there, is, there is a... Um, an imputation, I think, 
that would come with baptism as well, his baptism, that he is aligning himself with us. Um, so that's in, in, in baptism, in, in, this, in the Lord's Supper, in the Eucharist, uh, he, of course, is giving himself to us. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out uh, for you. And, um, and we said last week that, that the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, is, is a, uh, it's a meal of redemption. Remember uh, how Mark places the institution of the Lord's Supper right between where he tells us about Judas' betrayal and Peter's, the prediction of Peter's denial. As if to say, this is a meal for those who need it. <laughs> this is a meal for those who are in need of forgiveness, of redemption, for those who have betrayed. It is amazing to me that, um, that by, I have to go back and look at the exact accounts, but uh, Judas is, for, as far as I can tell, at the table. This is my body, broken for you. We looked at Mark 14, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, and saw that the communion is not just communion with God, although it certainly is that, uh, but it is communion with one another. There is both a vertical and a horizontal aspect to this. We are saying we are in communion with one another. We are, uh, we are given to one another. We, our relationships, are, as our relationship is open with God and there is no hindrance, we're saying as we take communion that we are open with one another. In fact, the peace is not just sort of a, a tension relief. You know, it's not just, it's not a time to, to um, stretch. <laughs> the peace, liturgically, uh, where, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Right before the announcements, uh, you know, the peace of the Lord be always with you and also with you when we stand up and we shake hands. The, the liturgically, that actually is the time where if you have a uh, conflict with someone who is in the church, that's why it's called the peace, because you are to go and make peace with them. And, um, and incidentally, that, that happened to me not too long ago. Someone that I may have had, um, uh, you know, just, well, we did. We had uh, some conflict, and during the peace, we went up and hugged and said, the Lord's peace, and, and, from, and we took communion, and from that place, we could actually sort of have a building block and, and a step forward, and things are, are great now. So, um, so that's what the peace is for. So remember that. It's not just a time to... Stand up and stretch and say hello. Although that's a fine thing to say. It's actually not a time for announcements either. That's just kind of when it works to, to give them uh, as, a, as a sidebar. Um, it would be better, I think, to have the announcements at the beginning of the service, but then half of you wouldn't hear them. So, um, Oh, come on. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. You're here. Don't, yeah, you're here. I mean, you're not going to be late to church. You're here. So, all right. All right. So, yeah. Gosh, you mean he notices? All right. Um, so, what is... The question for this week is, is what is happening on the table? What's actually happening on the table? Um, Jesus holds up the, the bread and says, This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. So, is it body? Or is it a remembrance? And in fact, in the Reformation, which you've heard me talk about a time or two, uh, 
this was the debate. I mean, there was a lot of other things on the table too, but this, I mean, what is happening on the table at communion is one was one of the hottest debates, one of the great stories that I uh, love. And it may it may be legend, but it, but I like to think that it's an absolute uh, hard and fast truth. Is that uh, Martin Luther was arguing with a companion about this? Who you know, and as Ted pointed out last week, the. Uh, this was a time of, of great tumult. They, the, the point of the Reformation was to reform the church, not to leave the church, not to, not, um, not to create something new. But some uh, were really swinging away from the, uh, from the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine. And, uh, and so I don't know if it was Huldrych Zwingli or exactly who it was, but uh, Martin Luther is debating in the pub about what is happening on the table. And Martin Luther never lost, maybe, maybe shifted slightly from transubstantiation, but really never lost his awe and wonder at the, the presence of Christ within the elements. Uh, this is my body. And he, um, the Latin that they would have uh, prayed the Mass in was um, uh, hoc est corpum meum. Hoc est corpum meum. Uh, this is my body, and Luther took, uh, dipped his finger in his beer foam and wrote "est" on the table. And I've never had gotten to do that. I've never gotten to dip my finger in beer foam and make a theological argument right there. I just, you, some of you seem to be looking at me in, in wonder. But um, the um, this is it is the body. So um, whereas Zwingli, uh, who is a student, but also in some ways a, a a competitor, but uh, of of Luther's said, no, it's just a, it's just a memorial. We do it because Jesus said to do it, but there is nothing happening there. And again, that was probably an overreaction uh, to Roman Catholicism uh, at the time. But um, so let me just say that there's a one in the spectrum, as you probably know, and, and many of, of you have come from back Catholic backgrounds. One view is transubstantiation, the um, substance of Christ. Uh, moves from the heavenlies in the spirit and upon the elements and the bread and wine actually become the body and blood. I don't think anyone would make the claim that if you put it under a microscope, it is flesh and blood. But, but that it is, in a very real sense, whether you believe it or not. If the Holy Spirit has come upon it, it is the body and the blood of Jesus. And so, you can imagine... Uh, that that is a great way for um, to evangelize the the baptized who have wandered away is to just get them the body and the blood, get them to communion, make them uh, take communion, and and a lot of uh, a lot of effort and energy around the world and throughout the centuries has been placed uh, in, on getting people to communion so they can partake of the body uh, and the blood. On the other end is. Um, uh, well, let me, let me say about that. You have the words of consecration, this for transubstantiation. The words of consecration, and it's like what we say in our liturgy, this is my body, this is my blood, and then you have the infusion of the Holy Spirit, and then it is the body and blood, it doesn't matter what you believe. Now, on the other end is memorialism. There is no change to the elements, the, the uh, bread uh, and the wine. Uh, we do it because Jesus said to do it. It's a good... Uh, and holy thing for us to do. It makes us remember uh, His sacrifice and who He is to us, uh, but nothing is actually happening there. Uh, and in fact, 
my brother-in-law who went to, um, just one second, uh, my brother-in-law who went to um, Baptist Seminary said yeah, that's all he ever learned. I mean, there's really, there's one or the other, transubstantiation or memorialism. Yes, ma'am, tell me. To me, when you have wine mm -hmm. and you have the host, it is wine and host until you bless it, mm -hmm. until somebody blesses it. That's all it is. And, and to me, um, until that blessing takes place, it's still just that. No, no, I don't think anybody would, would uh, deny that, that it is until there's a blessing that it is bread and wine. It's what's happening then. That's, that's at, the, at the point of the blessing, right. what happens? Anything? I mean, when we say our, we were eating chicken and peas at our home, and we say a blessing, nothing happens to the chicken no, and no, peas. So, this, I mean, this is a sacrament. So once once it's blessed, then to me it becomes the body and blood of Christ. Well, I can appreciate that that is to you, but what we want to understand is that, of course, it doesn't matter really what no. you think or any of us think. What's what's actually happening? My point in saying about the chicken and the peas is that is that we don't we don't anticipate that any you know the Holy Spirit has descended upon the the chicken and the peas and made it in anything else. We just said a blessing. And for those who come from that end, the memorialist end, it, that, I mean, to say a blessing doesn't mean that it is cha changing. Right. To me, when, when you're blessing the food, yes. okay, to me, is, is you're, you're blessing the food to nourish you to continue your faith. That's how I look at it. Now, that doesn't mean anybody else has to look at it that way. That's how I look at it. That, that, well, I know, I but you're answering the question. I'm still asking the question. No. <laughs> <laughs> you're eating. I'm setting the table. Yeah. Pep it up. All right. So, yeah, these two ends of things. There's transubstantiation and there is memorialism. Is there a third way? And, of course, as if you know anything about uh, good Episcopalians, uh, we always are going to find a way to uh, be in, in the middle on things, and yes, there is. And I don't think this is uh, actually unique to Anglicans. Uh, in fact, John Calvin, and you know, sometimes when we hear the word Calvin, or we kind of, you know, uh, may, may tense up. Listen, Calvin, John Calvin wasn't nearly so Calvinist as the Calvinists. So John Calvin had, was actually really had some incredible things, and his doctrine of the Eucharist was incredibly uh, beautiful and reverent. And he believed that the Holy Spirit came upon the elements for the believer. And his, um, but, it, but it was the, for the believer. In other words, it's, the priest can say the, the blessing, but if the person taking it into themselves doesn't believe in Jesus, then it is just bread and wine. And that theology actually was very influential for Thomas Cranmer, who was the archbishop um, under Henry VIII when the um, great divide happened between the Church of England and the Church of Rome. And so written into our liturgy, and from its earliest moments, is the idea that there must be an element of faith. In other words, it doesn't matter how fervently the priest prayed over the elements. If you it doesn't matter how much you eat of that bread or you can drink wine till you're drunk. If you don't believe, it is not the body and blood of Christ to you. That is a, uh, some people call that a receptionist end of things, uh, receptionist view of things. It is in the receiving of it. 
there is a um, there is a, a very clear element that, it, that the Holy Spirit is upon the elements of very clear belief, but there must be faith in the receiving believer. Yes, Tim. Um, there was there was an old test of what constitutes a valid sacrament. You you may know it. It's a four part test, and they would say is it it must involve have the right man, the right words, the right substance, and the right intention in order to be a valid sacrament. And so this is what you described. You might have the, the priest ordained in the apostolic succession, the right words, the, the theological liturgy, the right substance, wine, but if the right but if the person didn't receive it the right intention, it wasn't a valid sacrament. That's that's right. Yes, Richard. Gonna to try to phrase this so people don't throw things at you. <laughs> it's not a sacrament unless you believe it is a sacrament. It is what your heart is that makes it a sacrament. Right. So Richard said it's not a sacrament unless you believe uh, it, it's where your heart is that makes it a sacrament. And and I, I would I would I, th- I think you're right. I, I would put I would be cautious to say that. That not only is our sacraments us reaching out to God, but they're God reaching out to us. Remember, these are offered in um, Jesus offering Himself uh, to us. Yes, we have to come in faith. But it, um, you know, I've known people who were baptized who took communion, and it was in the taking and receiving of communion that they came to faith. And and so the Lord worked wonderfully, mysteriously, miraculously in that moment in that sacrament to bring them into a living faith, not just a religious sort of um, faith of a, of a, of a service, but, a, but actually a living faith in their hearts. But it was in that moment that the, that the body and blood, it, the bread and wine became body and blood to them because they came in faith. So it is a thin place. The sacrament is a thin place. It is God reaching out to us and us reaching out to God. But I would agree uh, there. Um, so, the third way, the Holy Spirit is present upon the elements, but those who receive it must receive it in faith. Um, so, again, very, very uh, uh, violent in some ways, um, mortal uh, arguments uh, in the Reformation. Queen Elizabeth I, um, who would have probably counted a blessing to have her greatest uh, controversy be where her uh, nephew was living. I mean, her grandson was living, but the... Um, uh, so there, were, there was a, uh, for Queen Elizabeth I, she said this, and, or at least this is attributed to her. "'Twas Christ the Word that spake it, the same took bread and brake it. And as the Word did make it, so I believe and take it. "'Twas Christ the Word that spake it, the same took bread and brake it. And as the Word did make it, so I believe and take it. So, to say that, yes, the Holy Spirit is present. And she was just trying to say, like, it really doesn't matter what I think. It's whether or not God shows up. But, it, um, but I believe, because God said, this is my body, and it's in that, that uh, reception of faith that I take. For instance, let me go back to the articles. Remember the articles of religion that we talked about uh, last week? In the very back, small print. Um, article 28, called, Of the Lord's Supper. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but also 
It is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death. Insomuch that to whoever rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Whoever takes it rightly, worthily, and with faith. That's, that's the, so what it, the, then the question, okay, I got faith, but what does rightly and worthily mean? What do you think? Rightly is apostolic succession. Okay. Rightly, it's been duly administered in that sense. Worthily. We've prepared ourselves. I don't think it says we are worthy in the sense of we're holy on our own merit. That we're going to look at the prayer of humble access in just a minute, which would speak to the contrary. But we are in faith that we believe it. We have prepared ourselves in communion with God and man, humanity. So. Well, for me, the Eucharist service is preparing you to come to the altar in the proper position of not being worthy to receive the word. The Eucharist is preparing us in the proper position of not being worthy to come and receive the worthy. Receive, receive the worthy. The word and the yes. I would say so. I mean, we come and we bow. I mean, that's why we kneel. I mean, again, if you can't kneel, no big deal. But if you, um, if you can kneel, it's better to kneel. Why? Because it is a position of reverence, of submission, of receiving. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I actually want to think a little bit more about that. We come, it positions us as unworthy. I, you know, some people really don't, yes, Melinda. Well, when you were saying that, I was thinking when Christ was sitting with the apostles, I feel like I'm unworthy like the apostles, and he shared this with us and gave it to us. So mm-hmm. when I go up there, I'm not worthy because I'm a sinner, but because he did that, he's accepting me, so I can accept the Eucharist. Absolutely. I even hear some emotion in there, which is which is which means you understand it, which is great. I mean, that's why, again, Judas and Peter, right? You know, it's on either side of the institution. Um it reminds me of a story that I intended to tell, so thank you, um, that uh, Frank Limehouse, who my mentor, um, tells that, that a man came up to me and, to him and said, I, I can't, I feel like I can't take communion because he felt unworthy. Well, so Frank says, well, what, you know, what's happening? What do, what do you, and he said, you know, actually, I feel sort of attacked uh, spiritually. Right before I come to communion, I have these terribly lewd thoughts, like pornographic images, just just really attacking his mind. And I know I can't come to the, to the table like that. And I don't know what to do about it because I want to take communion, but I just know that I, that, that I can't come. I can't, I, you know, he was afraid he would almost defile the table in a, in a sense. And Frank looked at him and said, let me tell you, if the blood of Jesus ain't stronger than that, then there's no reason for any of us to come. Amen. You come and take it. And, um, and so he did, and of course, you know, the Christ won the day in his heart and mind. You know, it just it was sort of a defeat of, of those thoughts. But which is not to say that it never came up or you didn't remember it or anything like that, but just to, that he it was a moment for him to believe that what he was partaking was stronger than his unworthiness. 
it was in that sense, very, very real sense, what Richard said, we were receiving the worthiness of Christ uh, in that. Again, Judas and Peter on either side. We're going to um, read the prayer of humble access, uh, which is not in the right to service. I wish it was. Um, in fact, uh, in some cases, I think it would be properly inserted in there. Um, some, people, I would say, some people do not like this prayer. Uh, some people have to kind of hold their breath or hold their nose when, when, they, when, they, when it comes up because it says we are not worthy. And, um, and, and that is, in a sense, uh, offensive. And I would say that is actually just reality. You know, somebody said, I um, have really low self-esteem. And, and someone uh, responded, well, it could perhaps you just have uh, correct self-esteem. You know, like uh, maybe you just have a good, right view of yourself. Um, it, it is, um, it's not to say, you know, to say well, I'm not worthy to receive, uh, to come before the Lord is not to say that I'm not a great person. You might be an amazing person. Are you worthy to stand before God Almighty? Absolutely not. Um, so it says, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. As if to say, you, 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 I mean, it was, it was in an article, so it's no big deal to say it. Michael Bloomberg, who's, I think, running for president, is that correct? Um, uh, said in an article several years ago, uh, if there is a heaven, when I get, get there, I am, uh, I'm headed right in. I'm not even stopping to check my ID because I've done so much good. Uh, to, um, and he cited uh, smoking cessation and uh, gun control uh, were, his, were his main things that he had, had fought on and said, I've just, you know, if there is a heaven when I get there. So he didn't, you know, he presumed to come on, on his own uh, righteousness, right? We do, not, we do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We, but we are trusting in your many and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. We to emphasize always. Always. Which is why Frank doesn't say to that guy, listen, I think you should go see a counselor and then come back and take communion. Um, try hypnosis, you know. It's why he says, you come and trust in his mercy. All sorts of stories like that. In fact, I knew of a, of a young lady who uh, just had a, had a very terrible uh, episode involving a bunch of young men. Um, and just felt lots of shame, just felt disgusting. And happened to be in a right one's service, just feeling completely unworthy, and heard this prayer. Your property is always to have mercy. And it was that that allowed her to believe that she could come and take communion and began her healing, really. Um, because if the Lord's blood isn't stronger than what would keep us away, then none of us need to worry about it. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink His blood. In other words, we are coming trusting in your mercy. What is that called? Faith. Therefore, grant us so to eat the flesh of thy dearly beloved Son and to drink His blood that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. We are 
uh, as your food becomes the substance of your body, so taking Christ becomes the substance of who you are. So, in order for communion to be communion, at least in our tradition, we say the words of institution. We say the words of Jesus um, over the bread and over the wine. This is my body. Now, my daughter asked me, why, then, Dad, why don't we break it when Jesus said break it? He took the bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Why don't we break it right there? Good question. It's a good question. In fact, it was such a good question that Archbishop Cramer said, that's where we're going to break it. And for hundreds of years, we, uh, the Church of England broke it there. As I understand the history of it, there's some folks that weren't crazy about that and didn't want to break it until we said the Holy, that the Holy Spirit has come upon it. That's when you break it, because you break what the Holy Spirit has given to us. And so that's why our tradition now, uh, and it has to do with a story with involves Scottish bishops that I don't need to go into. But um, there is um, that part where we ask the Lord to sanctify the elements. It's called the epiclesis. The, the, uh, the Spirit comes upon, epi, comes upon uh, the elements. And... Um, and is, it becomes, in that moment, the body and blood. If we were to do sanctus bells, that's where we'd ring them. We don't do them because that, to me, says there's no element of faith. It's whether you believe it or not. So that's why we don't do sanctus bells. Uh, there has to be an element of faith as well. But, um, but we break it. At, you can break it any time after the Holy Spirit has come upon it. But we find it most convenient to break it after we say the Lord's Prayer. So, um, so it is really... The body and blood of Christ, because the Spirit is upon it. And we, um, so we keep those, um, once we have had it on the table, we've said our prayers over it. If there are leftovers, we, um, we hold them with reverence. Um, they are, I think I told you last week, they were originally consumed, not because they are so holy, but so that they would not be available for people to worship. Um, because we are so likely to sort of make something incredible out of it. <laughs> Nevertheless, we do keep a light on, uh, and who's altar guild here? What, what's the um, what's the name of the light? Sanctuary. The taber- sanctuary light, ta- tabernacle light, um, the light by the tabernacle, the candle over there. Uh, and so, uh, if that light is on, that means that there's reserved sacrament there, and we can use that to take it uh, out or, um, and take it somewhat shut-ins, or we can take it out if we are short during service. Um, but if we don't put it there, and we don't consume it, we, put it, we don't just throw it away, we put it in the ground, right? We might put it in the river, we might bury the, it, or we, ha- you know, we have a sink called a piscina that uh, doesn't go into the sewage system or the... Um, it goes to the ground. And so that's where it goes. We, we hold it with reverence. It's consumed or given back to the earth. Um, the last thing I want to say, and then I'll just open up for, for more questions or comments, that it is not a re-sacrifice. That is why when you may have been to other churches, the priest holds up, the breaks it, says, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. That, to me, says in every way that Christ, 
our Passover is, like in the breaking, that Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us there. And it is actually the perfect tense. Christ is and always is sacrificed for us. He is sacrificed for us. And therefore we shall keep the feast. But it just, since it is given as a, as a, um, as a uh, up to the left of the press, um, priest's discretion, uh, I may say it. I, I don't say it because I think it's confusing. I've heard priests say, they break it and say, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. I don't really like changing the words of the prayer book, but since it's given as an option, then I, I just don't exercise that option. But he is sacrificed. He's just not re-sacrificed. I want to be really clear about that. There has been, again, that doctrine has been spread around, and I think mostly in the Catholic Church in some aspects of it, that, that there's a re-sacrifice every time the... Uh, the, the bread is broken. And it's not. He was sacrificed once for all. So, All right. That's really what I want to say about it. There may be some things I've, I've left out. I, I wonder if you have some questions that are left. Yes, Charlene. Um, for those of us that, that serve at the altar, um, the way I was taught is once those, the, the bread and wine have been blessed, they become the body and blood yes. of Christ. So we're very careful about consuming. Even if, some, if something drops, we pick it up and eat it. Yes. If the wine is spilled. And I know that you announce, like before funerals or occasions, that we might have some people that are new to our church that all baptized Catholics are allowed to come and take communion. Baptized Christians, not just Catholics. I mean, yeah, I, you're right. Yeah. I, I didn't yeah. Even say <laughs> I meant Christians, sorry. But. A lot of children come to the altar and they are given communion. And for those of us that really take it so seriously, when I see a child playing with the bread or, um, you know, they, they don't consume it at the altar, they take it back and no telling what mm -hmm. happens to it. Mm -hmm. that, that's really upsetting to me. Yeah, I, I think you raise a, a good point and, and uh, an understandable one. If you couldn't hear Charlene, she says, you know, what about the children who come and don't, um, they're not old enough to really understand, right? right? And, and, and maybe they play with it, maybe they don't eat the whole thing or they drop it or whatever. The reason we give communion to children is because they have been baptized. Correct. And they're no higher ranking Christian than a baptized Christian. Um, but I, um, and so everyone, is, take it. it is a family choice. We actually, in our family, we, we actually withheld Eucharist from uh, our kids until they were six. And then when they were six, they went through a little class, and uh, we made kind of a big deal about their first communion, just so they could may have a chance of remembering it as a marker. Um, it's, so what we just say to, the fa to parents is that we leave it up to the, it's the parents' decision. And uh, because they have been baptized, and they're certainly eligible to take it, um, but this also why we have these communion classes that Beth does for our children, so that they are early on gaining another under, a, a deeper understanding of what's available. Well, of course, in the Catholic tradition, they do have first communion first class. Communion, yes. And to me, that makes so much sense because at least the children have a basic understanding of what they're doing. I, I actually really prefer that, but it is, it's just not been a hill I'm going to die on. Uh, well, yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and now that we've certainly, there are young families that come up with their children, and it's just yeah. something that they do, particularly, of course, we see that more at the 1030 service. And 
and that's fun. I mean, that's been established in this church, and mm -hmm. that's just the way it is. But for those of us that, yes. that are at the altar, it, it just, it, it really is hard. Yeah, I, I do prefer that First Communion um, yeah. model, but again, it's, 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 I think it's a matter of preference, but it, but I understand the sort of the history that comes with that. Yes, Ted. Um, what do you think about Canon Thirty One? You know what I'm talking what about. What do I think about Canon Thirty One? National Canon. You're gonna have to you're okay. fill me in on that one. I. Uh, it, we have a national canon in the Episcopal Church that says no one may take communion within this church who has not been baptized. Yes. And in the Episcopal Church now, you see some places that. Printed their bulletin. All are welcome. Oh no! I, so the question is, can um, can baptize uh, can Christians um, can communion be given to the unbaptized? And and it is sometimes seen as a a, a means of evangelism uh, or a place to welcome all baptized Christians. And I tell people, if you haven't been baptized, come up and you know we'd love for you to come up and and it's a meal for the for the family. And and it is an invitation within the family. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean you don't. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Just, but but the baptism is the standard for a public profession of faith, and and that's sort of the the entrance into the the family. So that that's that's why I don't allow or I mean I don't check people's ID, but I, I, I it does it does say in the bulletin, and I often say it from the steps. All baptized Christians are warmly invited to receive. Yes. I think it's not your charge or our charge to uh, certify whether someone has been baptized or not. Right. That's that's between them and God. So it, it, you can't. We don't have a mark on our forehead that says I've been baptized. Right. So the, in, in your case, Charlie, with the little the younger ones that come up, we don't. If they're not of this faith, because it's speaking of funerals, well, if they're not of our faith from our church, we don't know where they've been baptized now, so we yeah, can't I mean, ask them. But, you know, but that's something that yes. their family will have to teach yes. them and whatnot. But you know, we don't have any way of certifying whether a person but, has But we do inten very intentionally it's take the uh, education. Yeah, right. yeah, seriously. Yes, Josh. Um, I grew up Lutheran, and the way I learned the, what happens at the table can be slightly different than what you presented. I learned about the substantiation the representative group. We actually had um, real presence or sacramental union way back in Wisconsin, consubstantiation. Consub, yeah. yeah. Where the got body and blood of Jesus is in, with, and under the consecrated elements. So it's more, this is body, this is bread and wine. You know, it's acknowledging that you put it under a microscope, like I said, and it's bread and it's wine. Mm -hmm. But you're receiving more with it. it does, there's no notion that like if you drop it you, know, you have to still eat it kind of thing like if some yeah right if somebody says it is the body and blood of christ and and i don't come in faith it's just not it, it is whether i think it is or not um but i don't get the benefit if i don't have the faith right i don't think it's mutually exclusive from the yeah middle path. it's just a different take a little bit yeah no i mean and, and i think that they actually work well together yeah I, for sure for sure okay good thank you that's helpful Yes, Katie. Um, I, I grew up Lutheran too, and uh, we couldn't take communion until we were confirmed. Uh -huh. And I have to say, I resented that because 
Intellectually, I knew I was forgiven. But to me, the specialness of the cleansing was in the mm -hmm. communion. Yes. Because Christ had died for us. And I didn't feel I was wholly cleansed until I was able to have my first communion. And so that meant I spent almost <coughs> eight, nine years feeling really that. Well, you're probably ahead of the curve, Katie. Most of them want to take it because their mom takes it. Um, but, um, well, I'm just saying, there are those of us who have children yeah. know the specialness of sure. communion. Listen, I mean, yeah, never, never underestimate what a child can, can understand. That's why, you know, like I opened last week saying Luke, you know, who is uh, not known for his attention to things, um, says, uh, you know, well, to his cousin who doesn't have communion every week, well, that's just sad because... Because he, he loves communion. So, anyway, well, this has been, uh, I hope this has been uh, helpful for you and engaging and, and can help you, again, uh, lead you to doxology to say when you take communion that this is actually the body and blood of Christ to, to me, who, as I believe, uh, reminding me of God's goodness and kindness and love for me. And it is, in fact, a means of grace um, that there is grace received in the receiving. And, um, so help us, to, Lord, to, uh, to know you, to love you, to serve you, and to receive you uh, daily. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.